to Janet today, Janet tomorrow, Janet forever. The Janet Jackson podcast where two cousins discuss all things Janet Jackson. Today we are going to talk with a special guest, Ayana Dozier, author of Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope for Bloomsbury Publishing's 33 and the Third series, which thoroughly examines Janet's sixth album, The Velvet Rope. My name is Courtney and I'm here with my cousin. Cousin Cam. Hey Cam, what it do? <laughs> Oh, busy, busy, busy. As they say, stretching and surviving. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's been I been a minute since I heard your voice. It's good to hear your voice. Hey, good to hear yours too, cuz. <laughs> so we got a full discussion today. I'm so excited about our guest that's coming up. Yes. But first, we got a few odds and ends we want to talk about in the world of Janet Jackson. Oh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's talk about this Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums of all time. Yes. Uh, and you know I'm going to be honest. I like to call it the we messed up the first two times. So let's begin. <laughs> we need more black people. <laughs> that's what it that's what it felt like to me. A lot of movement. It was a, it was a lot of movement. Um as you alluded to, uh the first <laughs> list um and had no black women in the top 50 at all. Like no black women on a list about music in the top yes. 50 at all. Um, so yeah, so they made some adjustments and they, they rectified that. Some of the major changes were in the top 10, particularly mm-hmm. around you know those early lists. The Beatles <laughs> had four of the top 10. Every spot. <laughs> Listen, every other spot was the Beatles. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I like the Beatles. I understand, you know, their history in the music business and the industry, but come on now. <laughs> I'm with you. Like, I respect the Beatles, even though Quincy Jones talked bad about them. <laughs> I respect the Beatles because if nothing else, they were like a true pop sensation. Like, they were a worldwide pop sensation. So I can't, right. I can't begrudge that. But I will say, mm-hmm. probably like eight years ago. Yeah. yeah, probably about eight years ago, I decided that, like, I wanted to know what the hype was about because the only Beatles songs I ever knew were the ones that In Vogue and Michael Jackson sang. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I'm going to learn some Beatles songs. So I, like, just dive deep into the discography. I'm listening to everything. And do you know, it was terrible. <laughs> I was not ready. I thought you was going to change my mind. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> so you wouldn't hear what they were hearing. <laughs> there weren't any that I was over the moon for. Mm-hmm. But again, I respect it because obviously this was a sensation. So I am the anomaly. I am the one who doesn't get it. And I accept that. Yeah. Did you feel like they were trying too hard with this list? Um, I thought it was interesting. So we should say how, how they developed the list. Yeah. So apparently more than 300 artists, journalists and industry figures, um, everyone from Beyonce to Taylor Swift to members of U2 helped determine the all new list. Voters were asked to submit ranked ballots listing their favorite 50 albums of all time. Yeah, yeah. And then there was some sort of point system. So I guess they were trying to be egalitarian. And I did actually look at like the list of people who were solicited. And I'm going to say it was pretty diverse. It could have it been some more Black people, but I'm going to say for the music industry, it was pretty diverse. Okay. Obviously, we want to talk about the Jacksons, and we're going to pause them for a second. But mm. 
Um, some of the things that I did not expect. So like the Beatles were in four of the top 10 positions and they were essentially re replaced, um, not replaced because they still have like two in the mm -hmm. top 10. Um, and then the ones that fell out are still in the top 50. But like having them fall out or and change places in some cases um, did make room for some different folks in the top 10. So like now we've got Johnny Mitchell in the top 10. We've got mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder in the top 10, Prince in the top mm -hmm. 10 and Lauryn Hill in the top 10 with the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And then mm -hmm. at number one, we have Marvin Gaye, what's going on? I have no problem with the number one being Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Because I still listen to cuts off of that whole collection, that, that whole album. I don't know why we had to redo a list to get him to number one. Yeah. The thing that stood out to me and the reason why I felt like they was trying a little bit too hard was if you go past the top 10, there was some albums in there that I was like, ain't no way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, for instance, with Kanye and Dark Twisted was like in the top 50, where I felt college dropout should have been higher than that one. So it was like, I respect the list, but there was a couple of them. I was like, man, a couple of these rap albums, I felt like mm, trying too hard. You know, doing well, too much. You know, what's interesting is like, I, from what I understand, people just got to like, name whatever was on their mind <laughs> so like okay. every album was available and so I think when that happens like it, it is going to be kind of a collection of like whatever is top of mind right like yeah, if you ask right. me to write down my 50 favorite albums I may not actually get my 50 favorite it may be the 50 I can remember at that time <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so yeah so I think there's a little give and take um but let's talk about the Jacksons yeah let's talk about the Jacksons I'm going to let you go first because, you know, I'm going to be a griper. <laughs> Maybe I'll let you go first. <laughs> All right. Give their positions first. Okay. Uh, coming in at number 12 is the Mr. Michael Jackson with Thriller. 36, Michael again with Off the Wall. Janet comes in at 111 with Control. Then we have 194 with Michael J with Bad. Then all the way at the bottom at 318 is Janet with the Velvet Rope. And 339, Janet again with Rhythm Nation, 1814. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know where I'm going with my gripe yet? Perhaps, yes. But do tell. <laughs> okay. My gripe is, of course, my favorite Janet project and era, Janet period. I didn't see it. Did I overlook it in the top five in 500 albums? Nobody throw that out there? I don't think so, hon. I think it's not. I don't think it's there. This list don't mean nothing to you. <laughs> this list is dead to you. <laughs> this list is dead because you got to have that on there, man. You got to. There wouldn't be a velvet rope without a Janet. Without oh, that. I was going to ask you if you thought Janet's list was in the right order, but not only do you not think they're in the right order, you don't even think it's the right album. <laughs> I think I'm okay with Control being at 111, but now somewhere in between now, you wait, you got to wait 207 well, albums before you mention her again. Put some respect on the name. It's a little wild. It's a little wild. I will it's say, a wild, wild. <laughs> yeah, so the list, it, it's really hard to search this list, so Ooh, I hope I'm yes. getting it right. But I believe in 2012, she had um, the Velvet Rope was on there, and I think the Velvet Rope might have been the only album on there in 2012. I feel like 
Rhythm Nation had to be on there, but I couldn't find it. So the one I could find was Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope. And it was in at number 259. And that was in 2012. So I was mm-hmm. like, hmm, man, this really took a tumble <laughs> in 2020. Like, what's really going on? Yeah. Uh, and, and then with as far as Michael goes, you know how I feel about Off the Wall. So to me, Off the Wall could have been 12 and Thriller could have been 36. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I love that. Off the Wall, man. It's a classic. People hate on Thriller a little too much for me, though, because I feel like the Thriller is solid front to back with the exception of Thriller. Oh, I can't stand that song. <laughs> <laughs> that, if we, around Halloween, I'm going to tell the Thriller song why I don't like Thriller. <laughs> around Halloween. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a solid entry, and considering the, that, that album still, I think if we look right now, it's probably still in the top 200. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, on the mm-hmm. billboard so you can't say anything bad about thriller mm-hmm. um right. so yeah i don't mind it but i was a little surprised that um velvet rope and rhythm nation were down so low but i mean everybody can't be at the top and i think it's important to have her on this list and you know i always go back and forth about like how much weight how much gravity do you give these types of things because they have been notoriously discriminatory of um people of color and any traditionally marginalized communities but I do think it's important because, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later with Ayana. I do think it's so important because these types of lists, like 40 years from now, mm-hmm. these are the types of lists where somebody might look back and try to really understand who were the tastemakers, who were the trendsetters of this time uh, of the 20th century. Or wait, we're in the 21st century now? Whatever mm-hmm. century, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be omitted from those lists means that people in the future don't really know your impact, but also they don't get to discover you. And so I do think it's important to have, to expand that canon and to include the voices that really shaped music of this time, not the voices that really shaped music of this time for a very particular and slim demographic. Right cold white guys right all right all right Um, oh we have one more thing to talk about before we get to ayana the billboard awards nomination and our girl janet she received one can you guess what it is yo i know what it is and i gotta tell you i didn't even know this was a category (laughs) dang it i knew you gonna say that i didn't either and I have a confession. I didn't know that there was a, no- a nomination for a top R&B tour. And her competition is B2K and Khalid, who I didn't know Khalid went on tour. <laughs> and I thought B2K was three years ago. But hey, don't blame me because I haven't watched the Billboard Awards since 2018 when Janet received her award. Well, sorry. I, so... <laughs> I was like, when did she go on tour? You know, this this pandemic is on like my space time continuum is all messed up. So I was like, when did she tour? So is it for state of the world or is it for the residency metamorphosis? Do you know? Uh that I'm not for sure. Cause like I said, I didn't know they gave an award. <laughs> well, whatever it's for, I hope she wins. Um if she uh, can't beat B2K and Khalid, something wrong. You know what, though? I'm not even going to trip. B2K, do you remember how people acted when they announced that Millennium Tour? Oh, yeah. People lost their mind for the B2K. 
And yeah, and I, then they had that little drama too that w- that was really selling tickets because it was like, are they gonna perform together? Be there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I wouldn't even be mad if they win it. I will say though, I'm just super excited because like it's 2020. This woman went on her first tour in 1989. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, 89, 90. Mm-hmm. So I mean, to be in the top three for you know contender for this award, like let's not minimize that. So win, awesome. But just as as they say, to be in the room, right? I just I'm excited about it. Um, even though I didn't know it existed, uh, mm-hmm. but now I am. Now that I know it exists, I'm excited. So. <laughs> You know what this kind of reminds me of when you go to them company functions and they have a raffle and then they like, just just pick up a ticket, pick up a ticket. So you'd pick it up and then they had a door prize and you win, you eat your chips and you go, oh, I won. Right. <laughs> Janet might be like, oh, for that time, I won. Okay. No, I needed a juicer, but I'm excited. <laughs> hey, take that juicer to the house. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk with our special guest, Ayana Dozier. She is a filmmaker, performance artist, and scholar. Ayana is a PhD candidate in the Department of Art, History, and Communication Studies at the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University. Adjunct professor in the Department of Communications and Media Studies at Fordham University, Rose Hill, and a Joan Tisch Teaching Fellow with the Whitney Museum of American Art. We've invited Ms. Dozier here today because in addition to that long list of impressive credentials, she's written a book about Janet Jackson's landmark work titled Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope for Bloomsbury Publishing's 33 and a Third series. My name is Courtney and I'm here with my cousin. Cousin Cam, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Ayana. Hi, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to welcome you to the podcast. We got a lot of things that we want to discuss with you. Let me just say this. This was a great read for me. What I love about this book was it took me back to the Velvet Rope era and how much has changed from then to now. You covered so many things in this book that we want to talk to you about, but first, what made you want to write about Janet's Velvet Rope era? Yeah, uh, well, first and foremost, thank you both for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm extremely grateful and also excited to speak with uh, genuine fans of, of Janet's career. I think some of the press has been, you know, just distant observers of, you know, oh, I like music culture, but um, there's just such a different energy of people who like know the artist. There's so many reasons why I wanted to write this book. And I wanted to write the book even before I, I became aware of the 33rd, 33 and a third series mm. that allows these kind of um, uh, semi-deep uh, engagements with uh, music culture uh, history via an album. I think I first started to recognize uh, the effect that the Velvet Rope had on my life when I became a teenager. I didn't have the vocabulary that I uh, have now, but I, I started to realize or just become aware that, wow, in the same way in which, you know, 
books, uh, you know, certain types of really quote unquote important artworks that, you know, like Michelangelo, all of that stuff that we look at and say, oh, that's important. Um, I too was like, wait, this album like has altered the trajectory of my life. Like I make different decisions or I'm beginning to make different decisions because of this album, because of the vocabulary about what it means to be me as a young Black woman growing up in the world uh, and as a queer young Black woman growing up in the world, that I was already starting to kind of make different decisions that I probably would have not made had I not listened to that album intensely. Um, And I wanted to explain that to people. Uh, When I first uh, started my um, graduate degrees in uh, 2004, 2012-2013, that's when I started to publish and write criticism on pop culture. And that's when that kind of instinct came back to me of, oh, I should say something about the Velvet Rope, especially at that period in the early 2000s before she came back with uh, Unbreakable, uh, that period, uh, which I like to call the Dark Ages. <laughs> you know, Janet was uh, ostracized, you know, she was still blacklisted. You had to justify Janet's uh, iconicity. And Mm -hmm. so many people, especially in academia, uh, were unwilling to concede Mm -hmm. of her impact. And I think in, in kind of concluding that question, that was another influence is the fact that uh, coming from an academic perspective, there are so many academic articles on Madonna, which like I get, I get there's, I think, Maybe one peer-reviewed article on Janet Jackson. Like it's wow. insane, and and I think that's what kind of gave me the influence of thinking, okay, I have to find a way to remind people because I, I was starting to see it in real time. That sense of uh, forgetfulness emerge. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for that. Okay. You have sparked so many things. <laughs> in but the first thing I want to say is just thank you because. One of the things you hit on is one of the things that I'm super passionate about, and that is almost the erasure of her in real time. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I was telling Cam, I was like, there should be 35 books about Janet Jackson. Yeah. And I'm so Mm -hmm. grateful that you took the time to not only like we we hear the passion. This is coming from a pace of passion. But we also hear like you felt like this was worthy for the Academy. Like we need to record (laughs) this legacy in mm-hmm. academia, because this is a person, a persona, a career, a legacy worth study, worth, worth preserving. Yeah. And, right. and I really appreciate that because she's been a trailblazer in so many ways for so many people, yet you still, to this day, this, you know, last week, um, there was the argument about her impact, about her legacy. Um, there was the conversation about Swiss Beats and, um, yeah. <laughs> with verses someone had put into the atmosphere perhaps there should be a versus with janet jackson and missy elliott and personally i don't think there should be for a host of reasons yeah but none of the reasons were that she didn't have enough hits to do it which is uh the position that uh swiss beats put up which is stunning to me because for someone to consider themselves a titan of the music industry one would think that one you would aim to preserve the legacy of your fellow black musicians but also mm-hmm. too that you would know your history you would know the yeah. history of music um and so i appreciate this because now it's like it, it can become canon right like we are on yeah. our way it takes yeah. one <laughs> and then there will be more um down the road but this was just so well done i wanted to 
I wanted to ask you about kind of those early days. So you came to Janet Jackson really early. Yeah. But you were seven. <laughs> yeah. And somehow you had finagled your way into getting your mother to take you to the store to buy yeah. the velvet rope at seven. <laughs> so kudos to you. <laughs> but, yeah. but I want to fast forward because you, you say something in this book that I have so many favorite lines, but you say something here, which is basically uh, the very last line, I think, of, of the work, which is the velvet rope gave me a voice and it made and continues to make my work and my life along with so many others possible. And I, and I want to hearken back to a story you told earlier, if, if you're, well, obviously you're willing to share it. You wrote it in the book. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> right. I wanted to talk about, you talked about the song Free Zone and how yeah. years after you had first heard that song, it, it, it essentially rescued you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, goodness. So that's a, been an interesting thing about what I reveal about my own life in the book um, is in terms of using anecdotes, uh, personal anecdotes as an entryway to, I think, ground a lot of the um, the concepts. Because it is, you know, I, I am an academic, but it is a, a, a more accessible piece of writing for me. Um, but there, there's a lot of theory, theory there. And um, I use myself as a as a way to remind people like this is real. So when I talk conceptually, like it affects people's lives. Um, and it was, it, I didn't go into writing that uh, with the intention to talk. Uh, and I don't think I talk about myself a lot, but with the intention to talk about the way uh, certain things in my life in that way. So I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I wrote it. So like, I'm going to have to talk about it, but uh, there, there are things in there that I, I haven't talked talk to my friends about, for example, and it just wow. came out of me. And I was like, wow. okay, <laughs> I guess I'm comfortable sharing this with everyone then. <laughs> so uh, with that anecdote, yeah, that, um, yeah, it was something that I felt would be useful because one element of the, of the Velvet Rope I, and I, I cannot overstate this enough, especially coming from Black culture, especially coming from uh, that transition period of uh, Black respectability politics in the 20th century. Uh, mm -hmm. Like Janet coming out and being very, not just an ally of queer culture, because a lot of artists were doing that in the late 90s, but, but also saying I myself could be queer. Like she purposefully blurs the line of her own sexual attraction on that album. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was risky, but it was useful because, and I was thinking of an interview she gave, I think for BET, where she states, you know, I'm doing this because I know a lot of my fans and a lot of the women in my life also have, have this. And so like, if, if I can insert myself as a, as a stand in for them, like th that I'm, I'm helping them out. Like I'm, I'm kind of drawing attention to ways of living that are actually quite normal for a lot of people uh, in terms of uh, queer expression. And, and that meant a lot to me uh, in kind of coming aware, becoming aware of my own queerness at a very, very young age. And I think listening uh, to the album the first time, uh, my mother had kind of omitted some songs. Uh, she had, I think I remember vividly, we came home from Sam Goody uh, in uh, October, uh, November 1997, and we had this huge sound system, so we immediately put it on. And most of the songs are fine up until speakerphone. 
And that's when you're like, <laughs> and that's when you're like, uh oh. And I remember that my mother was in the kitchen and that came off and she like darts to the sound system and she's like, no. She's like, I have to actually listen to this, you know, before we can just play it. And so she then took it to her room and then she came back and she was like, here are the songs that I think are like, okay. And I, I believe Reason was one of them. And I just don't think she like really got it. Um, and, you know, I, and as a young kid, I didn't get it either. I was like, oh yeah, it's about like dancing or something. And so, uh, when I was kind of, um, when uh, my family realized that, oh, I was attracted to, you know, the same gender, um, I, I kind of went back to that and, and then suddenly made sense. And, and I also, I think I'm, I'm quite open in the, in the book that, you know, memory is weird. So sometimes we misremember things, but sometimes we just have that instinct, that feeling mm-hmm. of this is what felt true to me at that time. And that's what I remember uh, and listening to it after that moment around 11, 12, just being, wow, like here's someone affirming my existence in the world um, uh, as a queer woman in ways that uh, weren't available to me uh, elsewhere. Uh, and and that, that, yeah, that, that really did uh, become a, a grounding point for me for several years thereafter. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book, so like you state right off the bat that this is, a black feminist literature. Like you are doing a study of this from that lens. But the thing I love is it's so accessible. So when I first saw that this book was gonna be published and, and that you were the author, I was super excited. Number one, obviously, because we need more Janet Jackson books, but it, it was important to me that we, we have a black woman um, to do this work, to, to kind of do this early work and kind of set the stage and that you did. What I love is that there is almost kind of a play-by-play of each song. Like there is a, a, a real a critical analysis of each song and not just the songs, but how they fit into the context of the world that we were weaving and how they fit into the context of the journey of Janet's trajectory um, for her album. And also, I just want to give people, I, I want to give them like a how-to guide for this book. Listen to the songs, man, because each song that you talk about when I went back and listened, there was so many layers that I missed. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that I didn't miss, maybe that I had missed the samples, like your knowledge about the individual samples that are on the songs. I ended up listening to so many 70s funk songs <laughs> because of yes. you calling out the various samples that are a part of this album. Um, so I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about one, the structure of the book, why it is the way that it is, and then how you went about putting it together. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, I, I read the 33 and a third uh, book series um, and, and they don't really have a set guideline, which is on one hand really great when you're a reader. Uh, but then when they say, hey, we're giving give you this opportunity, you're like, oh, wait, I have to do this uh, by myself in, in some extent. So I felt like I wanted to pull out what I always thought worked best in that series. Um, and I really liked the uh, 33 and a thirds that gave me not just historical information um, and not just personal information, but also gave me a, a new insight uh, into the album, like into the songs themselves. Uh, and, uh, and some of them don't always do that. Some of them just look at the hits, the singles, um, and miss out on uh, the kind of 
the other tracks uh, that can make it up uh, and make up its uniqueness. And I wanted to ensure that I paid close attention to the songs on the album. Um, and when I made that decision, I then had to figure out structure wise, you know, what did that look like? Am I just gonna like break it up uh, chapters? Like here are the first four songs and then chapter two is like tra tracks like five through this. Um, and, and I realized that that wouldn't be productive. That would maybe be quite stale. Um, and so I, I, I kind of sat for a while um, thinking, okay, how can I conceptually organize this and find themes that allow people to hold on to a concept and then take that concept and apply it to these different uh, tracks. And I, I realized that while there are many stories that can be told about the Velvet Rope, that there are essentially four dominant ones that hold in uh, about 16 uh, tracks uh, with a, a few of the interludes spilling over, um, where we have uh, a kind of real uh, question of confronting the past, confronting yourself, um, and that appears in, in several tracks. Um, we have a real consideration of just of depression, of melancholy, of being disconnected or alienated from others. Uh, we have a very intense engagement around sexuality. And then we have um, songs that are kind of organized around possibility, around uh, emancipation even, around just freedom. Uh, and, and that freedom, although we look at the Velvet Rope and we don't think of it as a, her most political work, um, but I, I think it is actually, um, but it, it's a personal freedom. It's a freedom from the self. It's a freedom from the past even. Um, and so I was able to kind of listen through the album and group the songs together in those four uh, arrangements. And I start with the hardest parts of, um, of the listening engagement and then end with that that sense of possibility um, being what we last listened to. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't imagine what it's like to sit down at that white space and figure out how to organize your thoughts around this work, but it works so well. So I appreciate you breaking it down for us. Um, and I would encourage anyone who's reading this book, get the book, get the album, yeah. get yourself a cup of coffee, or <laughs> in my case, I had kombucha. <laughs> now that enjoy it because it's really a readable book and that's what I want people to take away is like sometimes people think of these work if if a scholar is involved at all like your PhD yeah. candidate so <laughs> if a scholar is involved at all then um it's a textbook and yeah. that is not what this is it's very readable but it does offer some very critical insights uh, of in this album and basically just using what was available to you. So, cause you mentioned that there aren't really any specific interviews for this work. This was a lot of archival studies, watching interviews, listen, uh, and using very specifically Janet's own words in this book to kind of help us to understand how it was received then, which I think is so important, but also what is it, what does it mean? What should it mean for us today? Yeah, absolutely. I want it to, because YouTube is such a great, tool to remind us of what was. Um, and while there's a lot of conceptual research, I, I wanted individuals after you know reading it to not only go back to the album and or to listen to the album beforehand, but I, I kind of also wanted that fan participation of like, oh, what did she say when she was talking to Oprah? <laughs> you know, and like trying to look that up and, um, and, and re-experiencing that for themselves as well. 
Yeah, and what's really cool is that in the electronic copy that I have, most of the notes and references are hyperlinked. So if you refer to an article or an interview that's available on the web, the link is right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that stood out with this book was you talk about how not only did the Velvet shock America mainstream, but the Black conservatives were a little taken back by this Janet. What was it about her being open about oppression, sexuality, and abuse? Why wasn't America ready for this Janet? Yeah, uh, because that that Janet and that type of um, honesty uh, is not a space that we make available to women uh, in society. So we're actually quite comfortable uh, with women expressing their sexuality insofar as it's centered around pleasing men. Mm. We get offended when uh, women assert their sexuality for their own pleasure, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when it's Mm -hmm. about them centering their needs. We get offended then when we uh, have women express their sexualities in ways that don't center men and maybe center women. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a clear line to to draw because while her previous album, Janet, was, yeah, you know, I wouldn't say controversial, but rather, you know, was provocative. It caused a stir, but because so much of that album, and and this is not a critique, Mm -hmm. but because so much of that album is about her, you know, in a healthy monogamous relationship and about Mm -hmm. like pleasing her man, a lot of that worked well. Like it was provocative in the right way of the way in which we can be like, oh, what a scandal. But culturally, we can affirm and get behind. And the Velvet Rope breaks up because she not only begins to center herself, but she also, what I think does is very, um, has always been culturally taboo. And I think specifically, if we go to the the roots of Black conservative culture, um, is to talk about abuse and uh, abuse for for Black women and Black women's sexuality. Um, has always been the thing that we keep silent about. And this is this is as old as, uh, not time, but as old as Reconstruction following slavery. Mm-hmm. One of the bargaining points was that we were willing to sacrifice Black women to get ahead. Mm. That if there's so much pain we can deal with in, in being abused, being lynched, and being attacked, and being literally new political laws uh, being written up to keep us... Uh, uh, oppressed, the the prison system coming after slavery, that prisons didn't really exist in the United States before mm-hmm. slavery, but they were invented to keep individuals in that position of subjugation. And Angela Davis writes about that. So that's not just me spitballing, but mm-hmm. that's actual historical fact. Uh, that if all of these things were happening, one of the consensus that kind of was made was that, well, we'll sacrifice Black women in order to, to kind of keep ahead and to keep the argument simplified. And so that meant then at the early 20th century, during this period of new music invention, where jazz comes about, where there becomes a clear split from the church, secular music, the devil's music, all of that stuff, it's all new for Black Americans. And, and Janet really did something different there by naming her abuse, not just domestically, but internal, uh, her inner saboteur even. And that's just not something that we've ever made publicly available for Black women. That's the thing that most Black women, especially Black women coming in the 20th century, we would hear in their autobiography right before they died. 
You know, that's the conversation you get with Oprah with like Tina Turner at the age of like 60, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you don't get that when they're in their late 20s, early 30s. And at the height of their career. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think too, you expressed this sentiment multiple times um, in the book where basically people do not want to hear about black people's pain. People do not want to hear about black women's pain specifically. Um, But in addition to that, there was this sentiment in the time when the Velvet Rope was released that Janet didn't have a right to these stories, whether it was about the depression. She can't be depressed. She's rich. Yeah. Or, Mm -hmm. or, or whether it was about like these kind of, what we would consider more provocative uh, sexual escapades, like not Lil Penny, she's, she's making this up. <laughs> this is a character that she's wearing um, for this album. One of the things that I love that you touch on um, in this book and not just touch on, but like you hold on to it like a kitten with her favorite toy <laughs> is how prone we are to revising history and how quickly it happens, especially in our new digital world. Yeah. Now, years later, we consider The Velvet Rope just a groundbreaking masterpiece. But its initial reception by mostly white men (laughs) um, was lukewarm at best. Yeah. In your book, you call attention to David Ritz's Rolling Stone interview uh, with Janet for The Velvet Rope. And he's talking about the reception of the album. And he just flat out says she got her ass kicked. Her metaphors are misunderstood. Word was she was into bondage or she was depressed. They said the album wasn't selling. They said the tour was bombing. The press was hostile for the first time in Janet's career. Downright mean. Yeah. And it's really interesting because you have that, what we, what we know happened and what we all lived through. And now if you read a review of the Velvet Rope, it's everything was roses. It was the best thing ever created. Yep. Talk a little bit about what was happening then and why the reception, why your perspective of why the reception was what it was. And then what's happened now that has caused people to go back and kind of take a second look at the velvet rope? Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. I'm glad you draw attention to that. Um, how we remember things is usually through media objects. A lot of us didn't live through World War II, but we remember the war and we remember the war because of film. Um, so I say that then because when we have our media object as something that's always changing, and or that's always being able to be erased and new information added on, uh, that does make our understanding of what happened suspect, actually. Before even The Velvet Rope, Rhythm Nation wasn't actually well received. Mm-hmm. It did well commercially. All of those number one hits, uh, not just the top seven, but she had four number one singles. Yeah. And then with the exception of All Right, all of the other singles were number two. Like that's insane. Mm -hmm. But that's the commercial reception. The critical reception was that she was trying too hard. And I remember it's 1990 or 1991 where Janet, she won an award for Rhythm Nation. She brought out uh, these two young girls who were inspired to go back and get their GED. And she reads a review where this like white woman was like, oh, the Rhythm Nation video uh, is black and white. It's trying to be serious. What does she think she's going to do? Dance her way into a revolution. 
And, you know, Janet's like obviously disgusted, but she reads it out and she's like, well, look at this. Like, look at yes. this effect that media can actually <laughs> shape people's lives. So I'm just, I'm highlighting that to, to also reassess our understanding of Janet's career. Um, I think a lot of her criticism has always been a little harsh, but I think that the Velvet Rope then already uh, battling against uh, kind of black respectability, uh, let alone then putting that into uh, white dominant space. A lot of the white men who kind of especially became fans of her only after Janet, really, uh, were really wanting a sequel to that. You know, like, yeah, talk us, talk more about, you know, uh, pleasuring us or talk more about that. Give us that fantasy, that mm-hmm. fantasy of a woman who doesn't have an interiority, who actually doesn't have a life beyond pleasing men. Even still in 2020, um, you know, I, I can name many movements. Um, I always hate defaulting to Me Too, but it's just, it's, it's common, people know it. But if anything about Me Too has shown us is that men still have a hard time listening to women and understanding the boundaries of consent. Um, and I think the criticism and backlash to Janet for the Velvet Rope is a clear demonstration of that of just a refusal to actually listen to women. Mm-hmm. I think in the 20 years plus since its release, I think what has happened is that a lot of criticism has changed. Um, I think you have a lot more, you have a lot more diversity, but you also have a lot more diversity, not just in like racial and uh, gender representation, but literally in just um, what counts as music criticism, like BuzzFeed. Um, and what that has done then it has break, broken up the uh, hierarchy of music criticism. And so that's where you then get all of these very diverse voices writing back like 20 years later, the Velvet Rope is iconic. It paved the way for Lemonade. And it's that type of uh, publishing then that allows people to go back to Wikipedia and then say, oh, actually, and uh, shape this narrative that the Velvet Rope has been well received all along. Hmm, hmm. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to the Velvet Rope a millions of times. I never looked at the reason why it wasn't well perceived was because Janet wasn't stroking the male ego. Yeah. And I just, I'm like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) And and I know this is kind of off subject, but like with sexuality, like me and my, me and my friends, you know, my homeboys, when we talking, you know, sports, women and everything else. Oh, it's cool for me to talk about my same sex relationship. But, if I talk about male on male, then it's like red flags all up. Right. But if I'm talking about women and women together, oh, that's the ultimate male fantasy. And so I'm just like, wow, how much of stroking a man's ego is is relevant into music today? So now I'm probably going to write a whole paper just thinking about <laughs> how that all plays together, for real. It does and, all tie together because I was just thinking about, you know, just... Uh, you know, kind of the reception of Megan Thee Stallion. Yeah. And I think it is because she does not center men in her discussions. And it's, it's, it's very hard for people to see women as autonomous and as agents of their own body and yes. agents of their own pleasure and agents of their own desire. Like we are to be subjected to the desires of the men that we are with, not, not our own, right? Yeah. And, and so it's very interesting for me to watch kind of the, I guess, the duplicity of, uh, especially in Black culture, because that's where you see the arguments about Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and the, the tendency is always to juxtapose them with um, others that they could be more like, right? Like it's, yeah. uh, you know, 
Meg the Stallion could be no name or she could be Meg the Stallion. Like she's right. She, she <laughs> seems to be doing pretty well um, yeah. with, with what she's chosen. But it's like uh, people, uh, particularly in the black community, expect um, expect women to project uh, this need to be desired by others. And in order to be desired by men, we must conform. And when we don't conform, they're kind of angry that they're still attracted. <laughs> like <laughs> Yes. And, and that with just a little bit about Meg Lee Stalin, um, I think, oh, I, I appreciate Cardi B, so the, this is no disrespect to her at all. Um, but in WAP, uh, Meg Lee Stalin has, I think, the smarter lyrics where mm-hmm. she talks about like, you know, I'm going to use you to get my education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> she, like, and then she has one of the, I think what a, a really, really impactful lyric and maybe we'll like fully recognize it 10 years from now. But she says, you know, like when I write it, I'm a, and he asked me who, whose it is, I'm going to spell my own name. Ah. And <laughs> I'm just like, yes. <laughs> like it, it's, it's cleverly, Date it, but it's also again that autonomous. Like I can enjoy this, and I can recognize that you might enjoy this too. Like this is for me, and that—that's mm-hmm. also because of literally. Like I, I go back to slavery because you know we're not done with slavery yet. It, if a system of four hundred plus years of subjugation, mm-hmm. and it's not even been two hundred years, like it still has something to say about how we understand ourselves. Um, so I say this then because it doesn't surprise me that we as a society have such a hard time when black women assert autonomy over their body because we literally were subjugated without the autonomy of our bodies. Like that was the whole point of slavery was that Mm -hmm. we didn't possess our bodies and that then slavery would be reproduced through our bodies without our consent. Yeah. It was our main selling feature. So even with the Janet being, you know, coming out of the shell with the Janet period Mm -hmm. and coming out with velvet rope, people were so uncomfortable what was it about the velvet rope that really made them more uncomfortable even though sex was evolved she was doing it still classy yeah i love when janet fans say that and janet says it too that she's like i feel like she, i think her quote is i feel what i do has class to it and oh, that's in relation <laughs> to madonna <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hey, I, I tell people all the time. I was like, no, nah, it's wild. It's very wild. Just own it. I don't- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it's special. Like when you listen to things like Throb or even the B-side um, from the Janet era, 70s love song. Yeah, wow. Like, ma'am, ma'am. <laughs> still like one of the nastiest songs I've ever heard. And I'm like, okay, but classy. Okay. Okay. You say so. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. So I think maybe how you begin that question, Cam, um, is, so I feel like there's a difference between, um, like, it's not sex is flat, because sex is not flat. Uh, sex is multidimensionary um, mm-hmm. in, all, in all of our experiences. But it is uh, flattened in society. Um, it's largely, um, like, centered around heterosexuality and really centered around men having agency and women being objects of desire. Um, and I think again with the Janet period, I don't, like I love that album and I don't think she was like making something to be like, mm, I want men to like me. Like I don't think she was trying to quote unquote play into that role. I just think that by default of like that being her quote unquote sexual awakening and her being mm-hmm. in a monogamous relationship with a man that mm-hmm. it inevitably fulfills that, that's all. And and it that her expression of sexuality then just 
was uh, comfortably fit into heterosexuality and uh, the dominance of, of that uh, representation in society. Um, the Velvet Rope very differently uh, goes against that because it introduces, um, you know, BDSM, it introduces consent, <laughs> like just <laughs> stop. Uh, and that's actually not something part of heterosexual culture. Again, the Velvet Rope differs from the Janet album because she introduces that as, as a starting point. Um, and she introduces uh, different types of sexual engagements. She actually adds depth to sex. Um, and that's, that's just not, that's not something that we've ever been uh, comfortable with in society. And I think still to this day, we struggle with it. We actually, as a society, we don't want the, the detail. We don't want the depth. We just want the surface. And when women break that, and when women assert autonomy, we, we, we have to push back against that. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Well, now, this is my last thing, because uh, I was taking notes for this. And I like the Velvet Rope. It's like in my top three of Janet <laughs> albums. I'm just going to say top three. Reading your work made me think of like Janet was giving us something that was timeless. And now, you know, fast forward to 2020, you have so many people come back to this project and they take little bits and pieces of what they discovered about themselves. And I think you did a great job with that, with just letting us know as a reader the journey of Janet and gives us another reason why we should appreciate the work. So I just want to give you kudos and just say once again, anybody has a chance to pick it up and read it, they should. It's definitely a journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Jumping off of what Cam said in final thoughts, uh, that... I can't overstate enough that while we're slowly crawling out of that misrecognition of Janet's influence or impact in society, um, that she really did give us a type of intervention on uh, Black womanhood. And in saying that, you know, the particular backlash against her following Super Bowl 2004 is a real travesty because it, it really tried to erase our memory. Uh, of that impact. And, uh, and I think, again, we're coming out of that. But, you know, there's a good 10 plus years where, you know, it was like the forbidden name to speak and, and, and how that robbed so many women trying to make sense of themselves in society. Yeah. Yeah. So I did want to say that, personally, for me, reading your book, really opened my eyes and reminded me why I love Janet Jackson. To be quite honest, I am a Janet Jackson fan that does not listen to Janet Jackson a lot, right? Like, so if you like, if you scroll through my phone, you'll see Leanne Havis, you'll see Moonchild, you'll see No Name. But when Janet Jackson comes on, like, I have to listen. Like, if it's in the story, I got to say the whole song. <laughs> but it's been a while since I intentionally sat down with the Velvet Rope. And so I have to thank you for that because your perspective, your insight really reminded me of the power of Janet Jackson. And the reason Cam and I started this podcast is because it was just important to us that we get on record the legacy of Janet Jackson. Yeah. And being able to talk to her fans and get them on record and being able to talk with her collaborators and get them on record. And just, it's just two black women in closets on opposite ends of the United States, yeah. right? But <laughs> our goal was really just to, because no one else was doing it. 
Yeah. And so we're so grateful to you for doing it right. <laughs> yes. Thank you. For doing this work and for lifting up her name. And I think if we don't preserve us, no one will. And yeah. so I'm just so thankful to you for doing that and taking us through the album with a more critical lens, but also a loving lens, because obviously you're a fan as well. Um, so I just appreciate that. And I want to close. I want to ask you um, to say a little bit about my favorite line in your book. <laughs> and it is, it is this. You say, the ambiguity on the velvet rope is so integral in helping listeners navigate uncertainty. What does that mean? Mm. And, I, and I think I, I believe that line is in relationship to some of the, the criticism of like, oh, be clearer if you're going to talk about, you know, being sad. Yeah. Give us everything. Why um, are you sad? We need details. Yes. Are you gay? We need specifics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And she was like, no, if I'm, I'm going to tell you I'm sad and I'm going to do it in this other way, this poetic way, this almost experimental way. Um, I think the Velvet Rope still is her most just like, let alone the topics and themes on the album. It's her most um, uh, like diverse album sonically. Like there's a lot of different sounds on it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of different genres and styles. And it, it really is an album that like frees your body uh, and allows your body to respond in different ways. Um, and it, with that being said, that, that experimentation in, in every form, in the production, in the songwriting, in the music videos, uh, in the, uh, the interviews, was productive. It wasn't just uh, a type of experimentation that leads to ambiguity or um, unclarity. Um, because she didn't know what she was doing. Like it wasn't one of those elements, but rather uh, I know that if I, if I say enough, but then hold back here, that the people listening will one be able to hear it. Um, and, I, and I think also if we go back to the, the themes on the album, domestic violence. And if you listen to any of the interviews of that era, um, she doesn't actually talk about that song, What About? She talks about it many years later, in different interviews, but she doesn't talk about it during that time period, but she uh, alludes to it in some of the interviews. Um, and what that does is it allows it to be accessible. So she delivers it for a wider audience and she knows that she's given just enough information for the women who need to hear that to hear it, while everyone else who may not be uh, keyed into that vocabulary, keyed in to what she's saying, won't also be completely dismissive about it. So that ambiguity opens up a lot of the interpretation of the album. And I think it also, for a lot of queer individuals, um, it not only made uh, the queerness more explicit for them, myself included, but I think also in the question of gender identity. And I, I think I used Janet Mock as an example, that ambiguity is what helped afford her uh, the opportunity to come into herself you know, as a trans woman in the world, even though there's no lyric about that whatsoever, mm -hmm. but it's the ambiguity there. And I think that that's not only a testament to Janet's cleverness as a songwriter, as a producer, as a conceptual artist, as a performer, um, but it's also uh, her awareness that there are certain things that don't need to be outright stated, even though I am stating them, um, but that can be organized differently. Uh, so that way I have this ma massive platform to do the work and then the people who need to hear it can hear it and, and do what they need to do with it. 
Love that. That's perfect. We're gonna leave it right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Leave it right there. Okay. So before we go, Ayana, will you tell us how can people get your book? Absolutely. Uh, so the preferred way uh, is to purchase the book directly via bloomsbury.com. Um, and uh, you can purchase it in a variety of formats, uh, hardcover, not hardcover, but paperback, um, uh, e-publishing edition or a PDF uh, edition. Um, if you uh, cannot uh, purchase it directly there, and I think uh, that might be a um, an international issue outside of the UK and the United States and Canada, uh, you can purpose, publish it uh, via Barnes and Noble, uh, which does have a global uh, outpost. And so those are the preferred ways. Um, for those who are located in New York City, you can publish it uh, in person or um, uh, yeah, in person via the Strand bookstore and Barnes and Noble. Excellent, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I do, I just would encourage anyone who is a Janet Jackson fan, a music history fan, a mm-hmm. feminist, a uh, black person, a woman, uh, adult or child, get this book. It's so good. All people. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Very bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us. And uh, we really just wish you all the best in your continued studies. Um, and we hope there's more to come from you. Uh, we'll be following. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was such an enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate it. That is it for us for now. If you need more Janet Jackson, which we know you need more Janet Jackson, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're already a subscriber, please tell a Janet Jackson fan about us and leave us a rating or review whenever you're listening. Your comments and ratings help other people find us, especially on iTunes. If you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Janet Jackson Pod. If you are following, thank you for every like and every single retweet, especially on episode releases. Those are simple things you can do and they go a long way to help us reach new Janet Jackson fans. Our intro and outro music, Good For You, is provided by THBD and is licensed under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. Thanks for listening to Janet Today, Janet Tomorrow, Janet Forever. And so what happens with those interviews is you have to do a lot more setup, you know, and I just, I, I kind of like, I just like, yeah, to you're, you're talking to her people here. You know, yeah. it's so funny because I can remember I was in college. So we're, we're older, um, not yeah, we're old, older. but older than you. <laughs> um, I was in college when the Velvet Rope came out. It was like my first semester of college. And I remember I went to school in Iowa, Ames, Iowa. Ooh. And there was one. <laughs> record store that well occasionally the walmart had black music uh but there was one record store and it was in walking distance so that album came out at midnight and i got up put on my clothes and walked to the record store (laughs) to get the velvet rope and then i came back to my dorm and stayed up all night listening to the velvet rope so for me to have listened that intently and to I don't know that I listened to anything else for a very long time. Right. And for me to be finding these new insights while reading your book, it was just a thrill. It was just, it was an absolute thrill. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah.